Psalm 86. We continue savoring the Psalter for just a few brief moments. And of Book 3, this is the only psalm that is attributed as a prayer of David. And before I begin, I'm going to ask the Lord's help here this afternoon. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, I come before you, Lord, and I pray that you will quiet my heart and still my mind, help me to focus on the scripture at hand. And Lord, I pray that those things that I've endeavored to study would come to light, Lord, but that it wouldn't distract from what you would say to us through this psalm. Uh, Lord, I pray that it would be right what we need today. And Lord, I ask that you would guide me and put a watch over my mouth, Lord. And don't let anything proceed forth from from my tongue that would dishonor you or take away from Christ. I pray that you'll help us in this afternoon as we consider what he did for us in approaching his table with, with gravity and with humility, Lord. And uh, we're thankful to be able to come and see this prayer that David prayed and then to be able to know that you hear us when we pray, Lord. Teach us to pray through Psalm 86, and I'll thank you. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Amen. Psalm 86, as we continue, I mentioned this is a prayer of David, and that's according to the inscription, and I do take the position that the inscriptions are inspired as well. Uh, we have the oldest record of them going back textually as far as we can imagine, and so I have no reason, uh, no argument against them being inspired. And so I do take the actual inscriptions above the Psalms as well as every jot and tittle uh, com- uh, just being part of the Scripture. <clears throat> I want to draw your attention to one verse, and I'll explain why here momentarily. Look at verse number 11, and let's read it out loud together. The psalmist says, Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Teach me thy way. This is a tremendous psalm. Now, as we approach it, let me say that there's there's quite a task that you have in front of you in looking at Psalm 86. I, you know, as I do, I look at the psalm and then I break it down and I try to understand it. And uh, that helped me actually be able to know why I was reading some of the things that I was reading later on when I would compare commentaries and those things. Commentary after commentary, even good men that I usually, you know, would agree with and, and would say, yeah, that's, that's a good statement there. Uh, Wearsby, for instance, he, he mentioned the term mosaic and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Uh, no, let's, no, let me misquote them. Um, not JFB, but it was, uh, uh, what's the other? Kyle and Dalich. It was Dalich, uh, the Old Testament commentary. I don't want to lose you in the woods there. But every, every commentary you open, like, I don't know how many, what's a good number? Three out of five? Eight out of ten? Seven out of ten? of the commentaries took this kind of approach. Some of them, I understand, they're coming from a text-critical position. They're you know, trying to figure out, piece together what's going on. They approach Psalm 86 as almost a mosaic. So don't misunderstand me. They, they don't go so far as to say it's not David's words, but the argument tended to be, uh, David, you know, this is attributed to him in Book 3. It's the only one in Book 3 that's attributed to him. And he just kind of took a smattering here, he took a quotation there, and then he compiled them all together, and you have this kind of mosaic spread of quotations 
of other psalms, and that's where we get Psalm 86. I think that they were trying to figure out Psalm 86, and they couldn't. And so that's the best explanation they came up with, that it's a mosaic of quotations from everywhere else just piled all together. So if you read Psalm 86 and you read the whole thing, uh, you can read it and kind of see, I mean, try to figure out where the stanzas are. Right? We talked about that last week with the Psalms being verses. Like we sing our songs. These are songs that have verses. Uh, it, it can be a challenge to figure out where the verses are in Psalm 86. And some verses only have one verse. Some stanzas only have one verse. Other stanzas would have four verses to them if you break the psalm down. Uh, even, well, surprisingly, even the uh, the Psalms Explorer and Logos Bible software didn't see the chiasm that's here. And so they broke it down as a strophe as well. So what I'm going to share with you actually was put together not only from the word commentary, word biblical commentary, which I don't agree with in, in, uh, in everything they say either, but it's a good uh, exegetical commentary nonetheless. Um, this Psalm, I do think that they got the structure closer than anybody else. And I do see a cyclical pattern in the psalm, which is why I had you read verse 11 with me. So as we connect the bigger ideas of this psalm, remember the chiastic format that I told you about, how X marks the spot? We've talked about that before and studied the psalms. What I gave you with verse 11 is what I believe to be the heart of the psalm. So everything else cycles around that thought. What is that thought? that David wants to leave with us all these thousands of years later. The thought is, teach me thy way. And as we work out from that idea, you know, Brother Mike saying the song, Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. He talked about quoting that verse and then trying to sing it. And we have the word in our heart. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. Lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. He shall direct thy paths. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and following my, my life verse in many ways. Teach me thy way. That's interesting to me. And this is why I know the Lord wanted me in Psalm 86 today based off what we were studying earlier in the morning message. He does that in, in magnificent ways. There are two ways, right? David's even acknowledging that here. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. But here David is saying, teach me thy way. Lord, I want to be on that narrow path. I want your way. I want your path. Oh, Jehovah. He says, if you'll do that, then I will walk in thy truth. Show me, Lord. That's all I need. Just show it to me. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk in truth. And I'm going to agree with your word. I'm going to agree with you. Then he says, unite my heart to fear thy name. Now, if you look at the verse, there's a colon after the word truth and before the word unite. And so the explanation of the parallel in the Hebrew that's here, teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Explain what learning the way of the Lord and having my, having my way walking in truth looks like. It's when my heart is united to fear thy name. Where am I going to learn to fear his name? Well, the psalm is a prayer. It says that in the inscription. And I believe that this psalm is full of the elements that you'll find even in the New Testament, uh, scattered about about how we approach God. Uh, we learn from Psalm 86 who we pray to. We learn uh, how we need to address our Lord. We learn uh, what we need to ask of Him when we go. 
So many things in Psalm 86. It's a beautiful psalm. It teaches us so much about prayer. So let's, as best as we can, and I'm going to try to do this uh, without notes. I mean, I do have an outline here that I I put together about the prayer, but I I want to try to look at it from the outside in with you. So let's try to see these ideas if we can. Verse number one, David says, Bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Now look at verse number 17. Show me a token for good, that they which hate me may see it, and be ashamed, because thou, Lord, hast hope in me and comforted me. You're my help. Do you see the idea of him needing help in verse number 1? Him being poor and needy? And then do you see how he closes the psalm with saying, it's because, Lord, because you have helped me. So did the Lord show up somewhere along the way through David's prayer time? He did. And God will show up in your prayer time if you'll stay persistent in prayer. So we see the idea here is that David is in a place he needs help. And um, I think Dr. Gill was quoting some of the older Jewish writers that attributed this to don't, don't, I don't want to misquote it, but I think it was Psalm 17. There were some circumstances surrounding Psalm 17 that he related with this through some of the older Jewish authors and writers. But Psalm 86, really, I would agree with most everyone else that we don't know exactly the time or the place. And I think that's on purpose. Because a lot of times the inscriptions will tell you, you know, this psalm was written when David was running from Saul, or this was written when uh, Absalom was taken, you know, trying to t- make a coup over the kingdom, or this psalm was written when this was occurring. And so we have the backdrops to many of the psalms. But a psalm like Psalm 86, I think, rises even above any temporal circumstance to speak to all generations and all times. And so while this was written, maybe when David was going through a difficult time in his life, I don't know which one exactly it is. You can't pinpoint the exact one. This is something that no matter when we find ourselves in places of difficulty, the difficulty that David is going to express frustration over in this psalm is his enemies are rising up against him. Sticks and stones, they break my bones. Words really hurt. Okay, they do. And David's enemies, he points them out here. He says, they're not keeping you before them. They they don't even regard you, Lord. And they're coming after me, and he's the Lord's anointed. I think that that there's a good precedent for seeing a connection with 2 Samuel chapter 7 here as well, behind this psalm. So some of you Sunday school uh, studiers, help help me remember what's going on in 2 Samuel 7. Davidic covenant. Thank you. And so David here is calling himself the Lord's servant. And the reason I make the connection is because you see the same words that he used in the prayer in 2 Samuel 7. Many of the same terms. He calls himself servant there. He calls himself servant here. He addresses the Lord there. Wearsby goes into a more technical explanation of every uh, every little connection and where the words are used. I think there's good precedent for that. So what's coming under attack, perhaps, would be the ideas of the Davidic covenant. We know this was true in David's ministry and his kingship, right? You had those that rose up against him and said, you're from Moab, you're a Moabite. Your grandmother is Ruth, the Moabitess. What are you doing on the throne of Israel? 
There was flack that David caught just because of his, his lineage. Well, God put all that to naught when he made the Davidic covenant. He promised because of David's heart. Remember, it was God's job. Thank you, Brother Mike, last time uh, that you preached on the kings because it's God's choice of the king and the people would come into agreement with that, right? We know how God told Israel they would select their kings. It was because he would actually lead them and they got what they asked for in King Saul, didn't they? They wanted a, a king like all the other nations. They sure got one in him. He started out well, but he didn't finish right. He finished horribly, actually. But David was the man after God's own heart. And because of David's heart for God and his unified following after the Lord, God blessed him. And David wanted to build God a house. And God made a promise to David that his his descendants would always sit on the throne of Israel. So you have the Davidic covenant. That's the backdrop of 2 Samuel. And now David's saying, Lord, you've got to do something here. Pleading as a servant with a master. You know, I mentioned this morning, then I met the master. There's a special relationship that happens with a master and a servant. The servant makes an appeal. And uh, I think Spurgeon is the one who talked about this psalm showing us how to formulate our prayers as arguments. Now, I'm not telling you you should go argue with God, but we do need to make an argument, do we not? I mean, if you're going to ask God for something, don't you need to be able to explain why you're asking Him for it? And so David here is saying, look, I'm your servant. You called me your servant. And all of this is happening that potentially could thwart your will being done. And Lord, I'm intervening on this and I'm, I'm coming to you because you're the one that has to do something about it. The servant-master relationship. So as we pray to the Lord, we remember, we're nothing. He's everything. He's the one that, as we follow the Lord, now applying it in the New Testament terminology, Jesus said that we don't choose ourselves. He chooses us. He ordains us. And so we walk in His way, in His light, in His path. And there are times when we're going to need to be on our knees before God because seemingly things are coming against His will and trying to thwart that. And like David, we can come to Him as a humble servant and say, Lord, I'm just trying to serve You. You've got to do something here or it's not going to happen. You've got to intervene. Lord, hear me. And, and David doesn't let go of God. Notice he prays for salvation. Verse number 1, he talks about his need and the depravity that he has. Verse number two, he talks about how he's still trusting, though his soul, his very soul is in danger. Verse number two, he says, preserve my soul for unholy. Thou, my God, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. Now, if you don't see the parallelism here, you might think David's getting a little haughty. Save me for I'm holy. Don't read it the wrong way. Because holiness here that David's talking about is explained by his trust. You see the parallel thought? Trust explains the holiness. So what makes David holy? His faith, his trust in God. How do we become holy? Like Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And David's saying, Lord, I've trusted in you. I am set apart from the world. I'm different from the world. I'm holy. I'm sanctified. Because I'm trusting in you, Lord, you've got to preserve my soul. I don't get all Calvinistic there and think that David's talking about you know, not persevering or something. Or don't you know make the other mistake of the charismatics and think that you can lose your salvation. He's praying for his soul. No, he's saying, preserve me. Salvation does not always necessarily mean heaven and hell when you read the Bible. And so 
David has some real enemies that are coming after him. He's saying, preserve me from them, Lord. This is, this is heavy on my soul. David's not worried about his eternal security here. He's worried about those that are going to thwart the will of God being done in his kingship and in his ministry. And he pleads for God's mercy. Verse number three. Notice where his soul rejoice, rejoices in verse number four. Rejoice the soul of thy servant. For unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my... Oh, you would expect to see voice there. But what is David doing? He's lifting up his soul to the Lord. I think this uh, is seen in the priesthood of the believer because you know, physically I never really leave this room, do I? But my soul is transported through the blood of Christ boldly before the throne of grace. And in an instant, in my mind, in my heart, in my soul, I am in the throne room of God when I pray to Him. And Lord, this is this is a need. That fits with, uh, with Hebrews 4.16, doesn't it? Because that verse tells us to come and pray for grace and mercy to find help in time of need. David is exercising the priesthood of the believer here in the Old Testament, if you want to call it that way. And so he says, hear me. Verses 5 and 6. So, Let's put the thought together. He's praying for salvation. He says, deliver me. And then he says, hear me. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is good. He's ready to forgive. What a beautiful verse. Look at verse number 5. For thou, Lord, who is our God? You want to learn theology? The Psalms will help you. Who is God? What do we learn about Him? His character is goodness. Thou art good. For thou, Lord, art good. And ready to forgive. You want to learn about God, here's some theology for you. God is ready to forgive. What are His attributes? What are His characteristics? He's ready to forgive. That's more than what can be said for me sometimes. I wish it weren't so. I'm being transparent. You need to be transparent too. Aren't there times when you might struggle with that? God never does. He's always ready to forgive. Plenteous in mercy. Unto all them that call upon thee. You'll never exhaust God's mercy. I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'll say it a hundred more times before I'm out of this life, I'm sure. God's mercy, I'm so glad it's everlasting because I use a lot of it every day. A lot of it. I really do. And if you're, if you're honest with yourself, you use a lot of God's mercy every day. So much so that if it were human mercy, merely human mercy, there'd surely be an end to it somewhere. And we'd get tired of it and be like, no, that's, but God's mercy is everlasting. There's a whole psalm that goes back and forth for His Mercy endureth forever. And then there's another statement. His mercy endureth forever. There's another statement. His mercy endureth forever. There's another statement. His mercy endureth forever. All throughout the psalm. Why do we need to know that? Because we forget. We need to hear it over and over again that His mercy endureth forever. And David pleads with His mercy. He's good. He's ready to forgive. If you'll call on Him, He'll hear you. Verse number 6. He mentions His need for the Lord. We sing that song, Lord, I need you. I need you, Lord. He says, hear me. He's not going to let go until God's heard him. Now, if you compare that with uh, the verses on the other side of verse 11, notice he talks about his enemies. He's talking about verse 2, preserving his soul. Uh, He talks about in verse number 16, turning unto him and having mercy upon him. You see the connection of the mercy there. So that's why I do believe this is a a spherical psalm. It just revolves around that Verse 11, from the outside in. And then he talks about his mercy in verse number uh, 13. And that references his mercy in verse 3, verse number 6, and verse 5. All these ideas. 
Notice he talks about God's goodness on the back side of the psalm as well as on the front side of the psalm. I think you can connect those ideas. Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer. And I love this word, attend. Attend to the voice of my supplications. You remember those uh, early childhood school days, don't you? Well, maybe not because they probably won't do it like this anymore with all that new math. They don't have to count anyway. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Remember, uh, well, they still do it in the Senate and House chambers, at least for now. And There's a roll call every morning. And if you're not at your desk, you're absent for the day. What are they doing? They're taking attendance. Lord, attend. That's a special word to me. Because it means we're calling on God and we want Him to be near. We want Him to be present. We want Him to be with us. Attend to this. And then it has the idea of, of meeting the needs that we would present before Him. Does it not? When we when we talk about a table waiter, we talk about someone who attends to the needs of the table. And so we're saying, Lord, here's a need. We don't make God our servant. That's not the mindset. But we say, Lord, you're the master. You've got to attend to this matter because this is beyond my control. I need you, Lord. I need you to hear me. And then verse number 7, he says, In the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. David knew where to go. I've said it for other psalms. It's no different here. He knew exactly where to go. And we do too if we'll heed his word. There's no other resource that will avail to you like the Bible will, like the Word of God will, when you're in trouble. You just need to go to God. You need to go to the Word. You need to go to the Lord. Uh, you can go to the psychobabble. You can go to all the, all, all the therapy you want. You can go to this and go to that. And there's a place for that. But there's nothing that compares with getting alone with God and having the deepest need of your soul met. That speaks peace every time. And he says, I'm going to call on you. When I'm in trouble, Lord, this is where I'm going to go. For thou wilt answer me. And then in verse number 8, he begins a magnificent section here about God. And uh, I think this is very poetic in the way David phrases it. Because there is none like God. I mentioned David knows where to go. He tells us why here. Because there's no one else. And the question is raised, you know, are there other gods? Are there other gods? Yes, there are. Otherwise, why would God tell His nation, Thou shalt have no other gods before Me? Are there other gods? Yes, there are other gods. Lowercase g gods. But there are no other gods. No other gods that even compare with our most high God. And that's what David says here. He says, you are incomparable. There's no other English word I can give you, but incomparable. No other thing you can serve or worship even compares to our God. The moment you try to compare and contrast is the moment you put him in a box and he ceases to be the God of heaven and earth. He's God. And David says, there's none like thee, Lord. And then this is a little bit of a messianic forethought that David is giving us here about the day that corresponds to Revelation 15. I don't want to misquote the verse, but I, somewhere in chapter 15, I think verse number uh, 4, somewhere along there, uh, there's, a, there's an aspect of all the nations coming before the Son. 
Does God have a son? You see, so many questions are answered by this. Are there other gods? Yes, there are, but none of them compared to our God, to the Most High God. Does God have a son? The Mormons would like to have that question answered, by the way. Does God have a son? Well, yeah, because the Scriptures teach that one day all the nations are going to come and bow before His Son. And uh, it depends on how you define the term son, I guess. I don't know, maybe you'd argue with them that way. But don't argue with them, that's not kind. I call upon thee. There's none like thee. So here, can you see David praising God for His incomparability? Can you see him praising God for His power? Great is the Lord. All the nations one day are going to come and adore you, Lord. Verse number 9. Great is the Lord. Wonderful is His works. He alone is God. Well, you just said there were no other gods. Because He alone is God. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm not contradicting anything here. Because there are other lowercase g's, but none of them. He alone is the one who is above all. He is transcendent in all His glories. Verse number 10, He says, For thou art great and doest wondrous things, Thou art God alone. God alone. There's no other way. It's a narrow way. Let me learn thy way, O Lord. And that's the heart of our psalm, is it not? Because there's no other one that compares like Him. That's the way I want to take. That's the way I want to go. And then David closes the psalm with thanksgiving. You know, we just came through thanksgiving and hopefully your belly was as full as mine on Thanksgiving Thursday Thankful for all God's blessings. Well, David has some thankfulness in his heart. And so he just kind of reclines on God here and says, Lord, I'm leaning on you. You have been so good. Thank the Lord. He saved me. Look at verse number 12. Verse number 12 through 13. Can you thank the Lord that you know his salvation? Now, I do mean from heaven and hell, yes. But how has the Lord saved you in other ways since you've been saved? I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about how has He saved you from temporal judgment? How has He saved you from a loss of future reward as you've walked with Him? How has He sent His messengers along His along your way just when you need it? How has He watched over you? How has He kept your feet from falling? How has He guided your way? See all these things. The unseen hand of God. And so David lifts up his voice and he says, I will praise Thee, O Lord my God. With all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. Do you see, Lord my God, all my heart, thy name forevermore. Why, David? Why are you going to praise him? Why are you going to thank him from the depths of your heart? For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. I don't care how low you go, God can always reach you wherever you are. There's nothing outside of his grasp. He goes to the depths. And so we praise, we sing praise to the Lord my God. We sing glory to His name. Glory to His name. His mercy is great. Mercy there was great and grace was free. We sing of His salvation. We sing of His riches so deep and so sure. Do you see how I'm singing some psalms here with you? We teach each other. We admonish each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord like David. His mercy is great. His grace is free. His salvation reaches to the depths. But David also isn't turning a blind eye to reality. He says, Lord, you're so good. My enemies are so bad. It's like night and day. And so he acknowledges their presence. He says they're real. Did you know you have very real enemies 
I don't like the fact that you're following Jesus. I hate to be the bearer of ill news, but it's true. You have a whole world out there that would rather live without Jesus. And as uh, you know, was mentioned before, the service here just in a casual conversation with me, when we preach the gospel to people, we become their enemy. We become a savior of death to some. And David here is standing for righteousness, and he says, it's making some people upset, Lord. And we've got real enemies, and David's enemies are real, and they disregard you, Lord. That's his argument. Here in verse number, verse number 14, we read these words, O God, that's Elohim, the proud are risen against me, and the assemblies of violent men have sought after my soul and have not set thee before them. Did David just describe the heart attitude of so many people in these last pride festivals and pride parades? I'm just going to park that right there and hopefully that will sink in and click with those who are following me. How proud are they? Now I've got nothing against you know, people in particular, but I do have something against sin. And sin is sin no matter how you sin it. And I'm going to have to stand before God for my sins and how I walk and transgress His work and anything that is that is remotely related to anything sex outside of marriage is sin. All of us will have to do with God on that. No matter what persuasion we may be. So let's not get lifted up with pride and thinking we know better than God and disregard His ways and disregard His work. Do you see David's argument here? I mean, how long ago did he pen these words? And it's just as uh, as relevant today for all these pride festivals and pride parades and, and laws and stuff that they're putting on the books here in Colorado now and, and our Supreme Court. God help us. Now, I'm thankful that we're seeing some things holding back what would have been I won't, I won't harp on this, but do you realize we would not have America today if things had gone differently in, in the last election? Are you registered to vote? Hey, let me just put a side plug, not from the pulpit. Are you registered to vote as a concerned citizen? Okay, if you're not registered to vote, please get registered to vote. See me, I can help you do that right today. I can point to the resources. We can get you all signed up. If you're eligible, you can register to vote today. And please vote in the next election. I'll add this caveat. If you know what you're doing, cast your ballot. Please figure the thing out and know what you're doing and cast it for your values. Don't vote party, vote principle. Okay, vote platform. Compare the platforms. Don't compare the person. Don't as much as you do the platform. What do they stand for? And you're not voting for a preacher. Okay? You're not. You're not voting for a pastor of the country. I wish it were different, but it's not. You're voting for corrupt people. Yeah, I just call politicians corrupt. Drain the swamp. Okay. But you do need to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Amen. Amen. So anyway, how did I get off on that? Yeah. Be proud. That's where we're at, man. Be proud. Can we humble ourselves before God and say, God save America? God bless America. Help us to walk in your way. There's a right way, isn't there? The Bible shows us that. But we as a country have drifted so far from it, we get lifted up with pride. And no pride leads to destruction. Well, the proud are risen up against me. Have the proud arisen against his people today? They have. 
And it's because they disregard his word. They don't set him before them. I think the argument's clear. Now, that's just an application, okay? David's enemies, uh, I, don't, I can't, you know, we can't make the argument that they were of that persuasion. But his enemies were real, and they had disregarded God's word just the same. But, you know, again, back to God. Verse number 15, he leaves us with this thought. You know, thou, O Lord, that's Adonai. You know, when you see Adonai there, uh, the Jewish people won't even say the name Jehovah. They'll replace it with Adonai because of the respect and reverence they have for him, for him, his name. He says, O Adonai, thou art a Elohim, a God, full of compassion. Do you see his compassion again there? Gracious, long-suffering, plenteous in mercy and truth. Where did mercy and truth meet? Psalm 85, they met at Calvary. And Jesus is coming again. And mercy and truth, righteousness and peace will kiss. Psalm 85 teaches us that. That's going to happen when Jesus comes. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. How compassionate is our God? He is full of compassion. You know, Romans 5.8 says we're sin abounded. Well, that's not 5.8. It's chapter 5. We're sin abounded. Grace did much more abound. How much compassion does God have? God have. He's full of compassion. He is gracious. He's long-suffering. He's plenteous in mercy and truth. You have the balance right there. Turn to me. And so he's praying, Lord. You're full of compassion. All these attributes, all these things, just draw me to you, Lord. The goodness of God leads me to repentance. And then he says this last prayer in verses 16 and 17. Lord, grant me strength and victory. Grant me strength and victory. This is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our faith. Right? Faith is the victory. Grant me strength, Lord. I'm not going to do this without your strength. There's no way I'll make it. That's the way to victory. Mercy, strength, salvation. Look at verse number 16. You'll see these. Turn unto me and have mercy upon me and give thy strength unto thy servant. Don't miss the thys. <laughs> Whose strength is it that he's asking for? Thy strength. The Lord's strength. He's saying, Lord, I'm not going to do this without you. I need your strength. You've got to lift me out of this. You've got to help me. Turn to me. Have mercy upon me. Give thy strength unto thy servant and save the son of thine handmaid. Yeah, the grandson of Ruth. That's right. Son of thy handmaid. Beautiful words. Show me, Lord. And this last verse, show me a token for good that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed because thou, Lord, hast opened me and comforted me. I just kind of summarize that this way. Show me, Lord, that you know, you're still with me and working with me and that I'm on the right track here. Show up, Lord, so that others will see that you're with me and working with me and, and helping me and, and doing this and you get the glory, Lord. Show up and show them, Lord. I need you in my life and I need others to see that I'm on the right way, that they might be drawn to you. Show me, Lord. Show me. Can you, that's, that's a good prayer to pray, isn't it? Show me. We're about to come to the table of the Lord. And Paul encouraged the church at Corinth, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat that bread and drink of that cup. As we come to the table, Lord, we're saying, show me. Show me in token that you're with me, Lord. That's the way David phrased it here. Show me that you haven't, that I, that I haven't departed from your way. 
teach me thy way. You see how easy it is to get off the way for God, to get off track for Him? We keep coming back to that thought. Show me, Lord. Show up in my life and show them. Show everybody else that you're real and that this isn't all just a big fairy tale, that the Bible is true and that you are my God and, and do things that are inexplicable in your incomparability. Do things in their life and in my life that will draw our attention to you. Lord, teach me thy way. There's a way which seemeth right unto a man. At the end there are the ways of death. And David says, I don't want that way. I want your way. Lord, teach me. If you'll teach me, I'll learn. And so are you teachable? Are you moldable? Are you transformable? Because if not, then you're just a hardened piece of shard ready to be busted and broken and put on the refuse pile. That's a, a hint towards Gehenna. That was the refuse pile. Okay? If you harden yourself and you're not teachable and moldable, then the only place for you is destruction. And that's a hard place to be. But God, God will teach you His way. He gives us His Word. And He says, this is the way. Walk ye in it. Joshua knew that way. He said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You can serve the other gods if you want, because there are other gods. But we're going to serve the one true God. We're going to serve Jehovah. And if you made that commitment to the Lord, if you said, Lord, I want your way, teach me thy way, then you have made that commitment because you're in his word. On a Sunday afternoon, when you could be having lunch already, you're taking lunchtime with the Bible, amen, and sitting down and feasting on the word of God because you want his way and you hunger and thirst for that.